Good morning. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Children are now dismissed to Children's Church. Come a long way in Exodus. Exodus 19 uh, could be seen as just a transition, a <clears throat> clearing of the throat before we get to the giving of the law. But I think it's a bit more than that. Um, you really see the truly awesome holiness of God and the importance of what is about to happen. So join me now as we read Exodus 19. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded to him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the, Lord to, uh, of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear When I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to God to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the third morning of the day, on the, sorry, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very great uh, and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up with Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank you for your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, we ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit that we may understand, believe, and obey that which you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Israel had certainly come a long way in the last three months that they left Egypt. This was a people who all of their lives had only known slavery, oppression, hardship, pain, humiliation. And God heard their groanings and he called Moses to lead them out, to be their deliverer. God loved them so much that he did not leave them in their Egyptian slavery. He brought them out with a mighty hand. But he also loved them so much that he wasn't just going to let them run about and figure it out how to live in this wide world of freedom. Now he was going to make covenant with them. He would make them his own special people. And this would establish them, this covenant would establish them as a people set apart, a people different than any other nation on earth. They would be overcome with the holiness of their covenant Lord at Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, they would see the majesty and the terror of a holy God, and they would recognize their unworthiness. On Sinai, we see both the love and the holiness of God coming together in amazing, profound ways. Notice how it starts off. We start off with God reiterating who he is and what he has done for them. These three months uh, coming out of Egypt have not been free from trial. They've done a lot in these three months. They had the crossing of the Red Sea. They had the water from the rock. <clears throat> they had the, the manna coming. They had all of these things that tested their faith, and they saw God come through time and time again. God had delivered his people. And now it was time for the next stage. This was a stage where they would, in a sense, become Israel, the people of God. Sinai is so significant that they actually camp here for almost a year. And in fact, camping at Sinai takes up the rest of Exodus, the entire book of Leviticus, and half of Numbers until they finally leave. They spend a long time here. This is a very significant aspect. Sinai was so important for not only their religious life, this is where they would receive the priesthood stipulations and what the tabernacle was to look like and what all of the sacrificial systems were to be and how they were to be conducted. It was also important for their civic life. They were given the law for how the people of God were to be governed, what sort of punishments should be given out for law-breaking, all sorts of scenarios in, in sometimes detail that you go, wow, you really thought this through, especially for people that don't have homes. We have laws like you need to build a fence around your rooftop. Huh, what a strange law. That law is related to the law, do not murder. How do you say? Well, because in those days, people would hang out on their rooftops a lot. They had flat roofs, and sometimes people would fall off the roof, and it doesn't feel good. Sometimes you die. So to build a fence was a way of protecting the life of your family and your neighbor. So we have these, these very detailed laws that God gives his people at Sinai. It would even shape their psychology, their self-conception. Who are we as a people? All of this would be profoundly shaped at Sinai. Sinai was where this covenant relationship with Israel was tremendously deepened, where they were really understanding what does it mean that we are God's people. Now, truly, though, there was already a relationship before this. In fact, it is the basis of what God does in the Exodus events. Way back in Genesis, we have God making covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of those were essentially the same covenant, just made anew, reiterated with Isaac and Jacob. But the initial covenant promises to Abraham are really the basis for everything that's happened in the Exodus. If we look back at uh, Genesis uh, 17, this is where God uh, makes a, this formalized covenant with Abraham. Uh, actually, it's Abram, and his name gets changed to Abraham here. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face 
And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's all of that. That is the background, necessary information to understand this covenant making that's going on in Exodus here. The covenant with the patriarchs was a unilateral covenant. It was God saying, this is what I'm going to do. It was God saying, I'm going to make something of you that you are not right now. The reality was at the time, Abraham was childless. He had... No prospects. His wife was barren. He was an old man. But God said, I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to make you a blessing to those who bless you. And I am going to curse those who dishonor you. This is a massively important concept to understand as the fulfillment. Here in Exodus, we have a nation. We, we did it. We, they, we have a multitude. We have this huge people now that are all descended that are heirs of the covenant they still don't have a land but they will in time the covenant uh, that god made with israel at sinai would shape what sort of nation they would be how are they going to be a blessing to the other nations how are they to behave in the land that the god is going to give them it's one thing to say we're going to all form a, a nation But the next question would have to be, what kind of nation? What are we going to be like? What is our character going to be like? This is that shaping. The newer covenant did not negate the previous covenant. It expanded it. It fulfilled it. It sharpened it. It gives you more understanding of of what it means. When I've often wondered, when Abraham got this, this covenant promise, if he wondered... What would that look like exactly? How, what, what will his offspring look like? In what way will they be a blessing? God is going to reveal these things progressively. These covenant relationships, each covenant expanding on, not, not abrogating the previous covenant, is really an important biblical concept. If you really want to understand the Bible's teaching, you should look at it as a unity, as, as God's story, as each covenant builds on the previous covenant and expands it and sharpens its focus. All of these things come together. All of the characters, all of the stories are really one story. Too often times when you read the Bible, it's easy to kind of um, go, uh, I'm going to read the the Abraham part and I'm done with that and then I sort of forget all that and then I move on to the next guy and then the next guy and the next guy and we kind of read it like totally separated from from one another. That's not what's going on, though. The main character in the Bible is God, and God is the one who is unifying all of these different characters. Sometimes people don't even have a concept of the time frame, so they'll they'll sort of think in, in some way that, like, 
King David was friends with Noah or something. And you go, no, they're separated by a long time, but they are connected by the God that they served. And that's what brings them together. Very different cultural context, very different life experience. Same God, tying it all together. When we understand that the covenants are essentially connected in one covenant with different uh, manifestations and different uh, elements of it revealed over time, we can understand the narrative of redemption that God has uh, preserved for us in Scripture. So when Moses uh, had, had brought them to Sinai, Moses went up onto the mountain to meet with God as he had done way back in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus 3, we see the circumstances of this first meeting between God and Moses. Moses was not at all expecting this. He wasn't given forewarning. As he's uh, bringing the people to Mount Sinai, he knows what to expect. He knows that he's about to meet with God. Uh, When he initially met with God at the burning bush, he had no idea. He was just tending the sheep. And it's interesting to me the difference between the two meetings and the similarities between the two meetings. In one, they're given three days' notice to say, consecrate yourself, prepare, this is going to happen. And then the other one, it's out of the blue, but he still has to take off his shoes for the land where God is, is holy. Let's look at uh, Exodus 3, uh, 1 through 12. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, the God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, that you have brought the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is a fulfillment. They're coming back to the mountain. Coming back to this mountain was this fulfillment. This that seemed so impossible when God spoke out of the burning bush and Moses really wasn't interested in this particular call. God had brought it about. It's fascinating. This shall be the sign that you'll know that I've, I've sent you. When they come out of Egypt. So Moses has now been at this for for months, maybe over a year, and now he has this confirmation of what God said to him at the burning bush. There's, of course, a bit of an ongoing discussion. Uh, If you're an eagle-eyed reader, you'll notice that in um, Exodus 3, it says, uh, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, but in Exodus 19, it's Sinai, So there's a bit of an ongoing discussion among biblical scholars as to are these two different places, Sinai and Horeb, are they the same name for two different, for for the same place? Um, Perhaps it's even a case of the 
region had one name, but the particular mountain had another name. Wilderness of Sinai, Sinai area, and Horeb. That one particular mountain in a mountain range or, or something of that nature. It's impossible to decide with any certainty, though, because we don't know where it is. Uh, there's a number of candidates, um, but we're not really sure where exactly these places are. But it does seem to me that um, what we have going on in Exodus 19 is a fulfillment of Exodus 3.12. So it would seem to me they're talking about the same place. And once again, God spoke important words to Moses that would have tremendous impact on Israel as a people. Once again, Moses would be the chosen instrument of God to shape his people into what he wanted them to be. God had uh, been instructed, uh, God started by instructing Moses to remind Israel of what Yahweh had done for them. They had witnessed God's mighty deeds, and their covenant was going to be based on what God had done. Notice how uh, God instructs Moses to speak. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is kind of an artful way of referring to everything that God had done so far. If you're looking uh, strictly literally and you go, I don't see eagles anywhere in Exodus previously to this. You're being way too literal. It's, it's a metaphor for God upholding them, sustaining them, taking them from a low place and lifting them high in power. God had shown this. God had, in other words, proven his power and his goodwill. Imagine for a second, somebody comes in, you don't know who this person is, and they say, make me your king. And you'll go, uh, I don't know who you are. I don't think so. But now imagine that same person comes in, and before they say, I'm, I'm going to be your king, they fix all your problems. Your enemies that have been afflicting you, they defeat them. And they, they give you food, and they build bridges, and they create all this infrastructure, and they do all these things. And then they say, make me your king. And you would go, great, you're, you're a good candidate. I've seen your track record. You're good at things. You know how to get things done. You know how to defend your people. You know how to build something good for them. I'm in. That's what God has done. He has proven himself. His track record is impeccable in his relationship with Israel. They have seen him come through time and time again. So then in verse 5, when he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, it's a known quantity. They're not being asked to swear allegiance to someone who maybe is competent, maybe is a fool, maybe has good intentions, maybe intends it all as a big joke. No, they know what God is like, and so they are willing to trust themselves. And God tells them, if you will obey, you will be treasured possession. It would be God's treasured possession. It's an interesting metaphor. What do you mean treasured possession? Something that is unique. God does not say that you will be my only people. He says, uh, for all the earth is mine, but among all the people, they would occupy a special place in God's heart. They would be what God valued highly, what God would protect. Like a king would protect his treasure trove, so God would protect them if they would keep the covenant. If they would obey, they would be changed from what they are to what they will be. They shall be to God a kingdom of priests. A royal priesthood is another way to say this. That is, they would be something that they are not now. What is a priest? A priest is someone who, two things, has special access to God. The priests were able to enter into the place where no one else could. They could minister in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. They were able to have special access to God, but they were also to represent God to the people and the people to God. They were intermediaries between 
holy God, and sinful people. When the people needed instruction, they'd go to the priests. If they needed uh, absolution from some sin, they would, the priest would offer a sacrifice in their stead. The priests were there to represent God with the people. And that would be Israel to the nations. God says that if they would keep covenant, that they would have a different relationship. They would represent God to the nations. Israel was to be an example to the nations of God's wise rule. So that when they saw Israel and they saw a people, a land that was ruled by God's law, and they would see the peace and the prosperity and the well-being that would come from that, they would go, wow, your God is good. Imagine an entire nation where people had honest dealings with each other, where people didn't take advantage of each other, where they didn't murder one another, where they didn't commit adultery, when they weren't coveting what one another had, where they were following the law of God. That's a prosperous society. That's a society where you can feel good about being a part of it. It is an example of what happens to a people that is under God's rule. It's what is supposed to be. Israel was supposed to be God's representatives to the nations. They would be a holy nation. A holy nation, that is a people group set apart. That's what holy means. It means to set apart. Now, one, one of the big themes in this chapter is to consecrate, holy you don't see it so much in English, but in Hebrew, it's kadosh, holy, kadosh. And so to consecrate is actually uh, to make kadosh, to kadosh it, to make it holy, to set it apart, um, to make it different than it was. Israel would be a kadosh gam, holy nation, people set apart unto the Lord. A beautiful picture of God's goodness for all the world to see. The opposite is that if you govern by wickedness, if you reject God's law, that's, that's a bad example. That's actually an example of what happens when you reject God's law. What happens when you reject God's law? It's choosing foolishness over wisdom. It's choosing destruction over life. It's choosing chaos over order. It's choosing sin over righteousness. Israel was not to be like that. Israel was to be a holy nation as they submitted themselves to God's good governance. They would be set apart, different from other nations. This was always God's purpose in making Israel his people, to be a testimony to the nations, to all the peoples of the earth, of himself, to make them a holy nation, a testimony to his goodness. The goal of redemption then wasn't just about Israel. The goal was redemption of all mankind. And you don't see this, <coughs> sorry, um, you don't see this fully fulfilled until the New Testament, where you have the new covenant that's opened up to all people. All the nations are the recipients of the New Testament uh, promises. So Jesus is last words to his followers before he's ascended into heaven in Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I love this picture of uh, God's people, not defined by ethnicity, not defined by genealogy, defined by obedience to the wise rule of God, defined by faith, identification with Christ. They are not second-class citizens. They are full recipients of the sign of the covenant in the New Testament with baptism. They are to observe all that the Lord commands them, just like Israel is receiving the, the law of God as a covenant-making, so all Christians, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of nationality, are to be taught the full nature 
of what it means to be God's people. That's God's purpose. That is God's heart, is for the redemption of the nations. But before they meet with God, they need to prepare themselves. Meeting with a holy Lord requires holy preparation. Moses' presentation of Yahweh's words to him were met with the appropriate response. They, were, they said, all that the Lord had commanded, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's exactly the right response because God has proven he's good. You should listen to him. He's not going to lead you wrong. Now, it's interesting. They don't here actually know what they're agreeing to. That's always fun, isn't it? If somebody says, uh, hey, uh, I need your help with something. Can you help me? The first question you should always ask is, what is it? What do you want me to do? I feel uncomfortable saying yes. I don't know what you want. Um, That's a wise response. They actually don't do that. They just say, whatever. I trust that God is going to lead us right. And that was the right decision. Now, I wonder if God had laid out the full terms of the covenant uh, before that if they would have the same response. Um, But they do have the right response here that we're going to be obedient. They knew who they were trusting. God had proven himself. And so when, when Moses reported that the people of Israel were willing to obey what the Lord had said, the Lord told him that he was to meet with Moses in a thick cloud that would be visible to the people and they would be able to even hear as God spoke to them. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. What an interesting thing. Why is it so important that the Israelites witness Moses conversing with God? Why is it important that they see the cloud and hear the voice? Because the, the terms of the covenant are going to be rough on them. It, it's going to really be a paradigm shift. And so they needed to understand the source of the covenant was not Moses. Moses was not arbitrarily going to make up a bunch of things. He wasn't going to just come up with it out of his own creativity. They needed to understand whose authority was behind the covenant stipulations, that this same God who had lifted them up on eagle's wings was now also giving them the terms of the covenant that were to govern them in the future, and that these laws were ultimately for their good. The upcoming meeting with Yahweh required special preparation. The people were to be consecrated. They were to wash their clothes. They were to abstain from marital relations. That's, why, that's what uh, verse 15 means. Uh, do not go near a woman is not so much don't talk to women. It's abstain from uh, sexual intimacy. But um, they were to be made holy in preparation for the next two days because the third day is going to be a doozy. It's going to be a meeting with the holy creator of all. The third day, they would witness God, Yahweh, descending on the mountain. And the mountain itself would be made holy because of God's presence there. And the amplified language here. So at the burning bush, you have one bush burning. When God appears to them on Sinai, it's the whole mountain is smoking, and there's fire, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's earthquake. It's overwhelming. Burning bush, God said, take off your sandals. Sinai, if anybody touches the mountain, they're dead. Holy presence. It's almost as if God wants to impress upon them just how holy he is. The holy nature of the meeting with God required them to be unusually holy themselves. And so activities that were normally fine were now to be forbidden because they were to be specially consecrated. This was necessary because of the one they were meeting with. God's holiness is a primary attribute of who he is. When you think about who is God, I hope you think about holiness. Unfortunately, holiness is also 
an incommunicable attribute. It's hard for us to grasp what is holiness. What does that entail? We should also understand that it is beautiful. It's also dangerous. It's beautiful because in God's holiness, you see just how utterly unique he is. There is no one like him. There is nothing that compared to him in, in power and in purity and goodness and righteousness and wisdom. He is the superlative. He is the best. He is the most. He is the greatest. It's also dangerous, though. His holiness is a consuming fire. It is dangerous because humans are impure, unholy, sinful. It is our sinfulness that makes the holiness of God our doom because God's holiness consumes the unholy. It is his very goodness and purity that requires his wrath against the unholy. Only under very special circumstances could Israel witness the might and the holiness of God. They needed to prepare themselves rightly. The tabernacle itself really was an example, a a vivid reminder of God's holiness. So the tabernacle was to have a, a, a fence around it where only the priest could go in. And then in that area, there was a, a, a place where only certain priests could go. And then there is the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once a year into the presence of God. There is a danger in the consuming holiness the perfect purity of God. And yet we have this amazing relationship between the love and the holiness of God. God's love had him call Israel out of Egypt and call him to himself, bring them to this mountain to make this covenant. God makes it with them because he loves them. But his holiness makes them afraid rightfully so, to get too close. It's not safe for them to get too close to his holy presence. So we have this kind of love drawing, holiness keeping away, this tension. God's love had brought them where they are. The love and beauty of God made the people want to draw near to God, but the holiness of God kept them from getting too close. Notice that the boundaries around the mountain were there to keep them from getting too close. They, weren't, they didn't want to run, in other words. They wanted to get close, but they weren't able to because they were not holy enough to enter into the presence of a holy God. I often am afraid of the lack of an understanding of the holiness of God. People like to think of God, uh, there's a t-shirt that used to be popular, I haven't seen it in a long time, but it used to say, like, Jesus is my homeboy. It's a picture of, like, Jesus playing basketball. So on the one hand, you go, well, isn't that nice? You, Jesus is your friend. Yeah. But he's also holy and do you have that awe? Do you have that respect that he is other? He is higher. He is not on your level. He is not your, your, your homeboy. He is your Lord, your covenant Lord, your Savior. Notice also how the Lord worked through an intermediary. So the, the third day comes around. This time that they've been preparing for. Now, notice they're not told exactly what will the third day look like exactly. Just that there's going to be a meeting. God mentions thunder. God mentions a cloud. But the reality of what happens is awe-inspiring. On the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very great trumpet blast so that all the people trembled. Whatever they were expecting, this was a little bit more than they were expecting. Thunder and lightning 
and even earthquakes. And as God descends, there's smoke and fire like a kiln coming up. The ground shakes. The trumpet, in verse 19, and as the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. So, you know, you might think trumpet blast like, done. No, it's like a rising sound that's ear splitting that is, you know, you can't stand it much longer. And then God says, Moses, come up here. This is scary. This is, this is truly frightening to see this display of God's presence in his creation. Whatever they had been expecting, they trembled when the reality was made manifest. And they trusted Moses enough to get close. And I wonder... As Moses said, okay, there's the trumpet. Come on, everyone. Let's go to the border. Let's go right up to the line. If there's anyone going, I don't know. There's like thunder and lightning and lots of smoke and fire and ground shaking. And my ears are about to explode because that trumpet blast is so loud. Maybe I'll just wait over here and then you tell me. But they followed and they come right up to the border. And then God calls Moses come up. God called him to come up to the top of the mountain. You know, that place of fire and lightning and smoke and fire and ground is trembling. But Moses went. And I wonder at that point if Moses was having any, any thoughts about, uh, about maybe not going. We're not shown anything like that. He has tremendous trust in the goodness of God. He's never seen quite this level of display of, of power, but he does know the character of God is good and that when he has trusted God before, he was okay. Over and over again, he had seen God come through. But we should understand God is not safe. God is not nerfed. God is dangerous to the unholy. God is holy and good. So when we approach, we approach in a way that he has prescribed. To approach God outside of the provisions he makes is doom, is perilous. The need to stay where it was safe was such that once Moses got to the top of the mountain, the first thing God says is, go back down. <laughs> go back down? I just climbed up here in a thunderstorm. <laughs> Why couldn't you tell me to do this stuff when I was still down there? Years ago, I went hiking. And um, a bunch of us in college, we went hiking. We didn't check the weather. We got to the top of this mountain, and a thunderstorm happened. And there was lightning around our ears. And it was terrifying. And we were like running down the mountain. And uh, it, it was scary. And I was like, I hope we don't die. And, and it, was, it was one of those storms where there's like nothing. And then all of a sudden the clouds roll in really fast. And then it's a torrential downpour. And there's lightning crashing into trees. There was a, I, I don't know how far away it was. Let's say 200 yards. And that lightning struck a tree. And I was like, ah! And it was like, this is it. Uh, there's, you know, there's uh, the, the path that was nice and dry coming up was now a, a giant stream and muddy and slippery with rocks and things. And it was like, oh. And here's Moses. He's 80 years old. And he's got to the top of the mountain. Okay, I'm here, Lord. And go back down and tell the people not to come up. This is actually the only time in the Bible where somebody argues with God on the basis of a previous command. So he says, go back down and tell them not to come up. And Moses says, I already told them not to come up. And God says, do it. All right, I'm going. Why does he tell him, don't let the people come up? Because it's real important that they understand that it is Moses and it is Aaron who are to come up here. No one else. Anyone else that comes up here, something terrible will happen lest the Lord break out against them, is the phrase. 
That's a scary thing. And we actually see the Lord break out against them in the book of Numbers. And it's terrible. The holiness of God must be respected. Set limits around the mountain. Don't come up. Go down. Take Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them, God says. Now, there's a question. Priests? Who are the priests? This is the first mention of any Israelite priest. Later, uh, we actually see the entire tribe of Levi consecrated as priests. So who are these priests? Um, I think probably the most likely candidate comes um, way back in uh, chapter 13, right after the Passover. Remember, the Passover was where God uh, slew the firstborn of Egypt. And so in in chapter 13, uh, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Make kadosh all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. So most likely, the priests that are spoken of here are the firstborn that have been made holy to God. And even they, the ones that are more consecrated than others, aren't consecrated enough. They're not holy enough. Only Moses, only Aaron, only they could come up here. They were chosen by God for this sacred duty of receiving from God the covenant that God was making with Israel. Notice that God does not tell them to choose a couple guys. They're not able to choose who their intermediary is. God has to choose who those intermediaries are. In this case, it's Moses and Aaron. But the great intermediary between God and man is not Moses and it's not Aaron. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this language of the intermediary chosen by God is powerfully present in Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, 1 through 10, we read this. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. And he also said in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why don't we have priests anymore? Why am I not called a priest? Why am I a a shepherd, Latin pastor? Why? Because we have a great high priest who fulfilled what all the priests in the Old Testament were supposed to be, what they wished that they were, what they were pointing toward is now here, Jesus is that great high priest who represents sinful people to a holy God. It is because of Jesus that we can pray to God and enter into his presence boldly because he has atoned for our sins. He has taken away our unholiness and given us his holiness. He is the source of eternal salvation for all who trust in him. Jesus his ultimate fulfillment of all these covenant promises in the Old Testament. All of these types, all of these yearnings, all of these themes are tied up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we have this beautiful picture of Jesus representing us to the Father and saying, I have atoned for their sins. 
I have offered my own life in place of theirs so that they do not have to be afraid of the wrath of God, which they justly deserve. We enter into the presence of God boldly. We are his treasured possession because of what he has done. He is the object of our faith, the only way of salvation. All who believe in him are in a new covenantal relationship with the Lord who made them, the treasured possession of God and God's witnesses in the world. Peter even calls us a royal priesthood, God's own people. We represent Christ wherever we go. God's people must always appreciate the holy God that they serve. It's only when you have a sense of the holiness of God that you can really appreciate the love of God displayed in what Jesus has done. When you understand that the holiness of God requires wrath against sin, then you'll understand how much you need a Savior. You can appreciate, wow, Jesus satisfied that wrath of God, that thunder, that lightning, that fire. I don't have to be afraid of that because of what Christ has done. Christ has made a way in a beautiful way between the holiness and the love of God. Believers are now able to enter into God's presence and even call him Father because of what Christ has done once and for all to satisfy and to be that intermediary priest. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your holiness. Lord, you are truly awesome, worthy of glory, worthy of respect, worthy of worship. Oh, Lord, we are unholy. We sin in thought and word and in deed. Lord, we thank you for the intermediary work of Christ on our behalf, that he has made a way where we never could. Father, would you help us to grow in our understanding of your holiness and your love, that we may worship you as we ought. We thank you, Lord, that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. May we be found faithful before you. In Jesus' name, amen.